Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today we're talking about police reform. My guest is California State Senator Cindy Comlogger, who represents a district in Los Angeles. She's the author of a bill that would change the way that police respond to nonviolent 911 calls in California. And it's based in part on an experience that she had when she called 911 years ago when her ex-boyfriend showed up on her doorstep in violation of a restraining order. And now, here's my conversation with Senator Sidney Comlogger. Senator Sidney Comlogger, from your office in Sacramento to my home in Oakland, welcome to It's All Political. Thank you so much for the invitation. Happy to be here. So you have a piece of legislation now that would, would change the way policing is done in California. It's called the Crises Act. And it would send community-based organizations into the field to respond to 911 calls and, and do a lot of other things, too, so that, so that law enforcement doesn't have to do that. And as, as you've said, the 70% of the calls that come to 911 are nonviolent and non-criminal in nature. Before we get to the details of the legislation, I wanted to ask you to, to uh, share a story, a personal story that helped inspire this legislation and it's about 25 years ago, and, and you found yourself, uh, as you describe it, uh, in an unhealthy relationship. And you tried to uh, begin to get yourself out of it. You got a restraining order. And why don't you take it from there? Yeah. So years ago, because um, I'm happily married now, and this is not about that uh, relationship, but years ago, I was in a relationship that was not very healthy. And I began to um, take the legal tools. Um, to get myself out of it. Um, and also, you know, put my big girl pants on um, to do the same, got a restraining order, you know, had the person move out of my apartment. Um, that was a wonderful experience talking to the judge about why someone needed to move out of my apartment rather than why I needed to move out of my apartment. But that's maybe for another podcast. Um, and then the individual showed up when he wasn't supposed to. And I called 911. It took a very long time for them to come. I was incredibly nervous. I was scared. And I was also really ashamed. Um, I did not want to have to involve law enforcement in this because I still felt that it was a personal issue um, between, you know, former partners. But I needed help. And I also <clears throat> didn't have you know, a big strapping brother or uncle or friend who I could call to just help give me some support to tell this person, it's over, you have to go. Eventually, when the <clears throat> police officer showed up, instead of getting any kind of help from him, he said, well, the guy left, so there's no need for me to be here. And maybe next time you should just think better about the kind of guy you want to get into a relationship with. And so, you know, it stayed with me. Um, it really shamed me. But I also remember years ago having a, um, a meeting with a number of law enforcement officers about, and it was during a Days of Dialogue event where you bring community members and law enforcement together. And we were talking about building trust in the African-American community. And I told this peace officer, I said, you know, from personal experiences, it would be hard for me to have trust in you because of this experience that I have. And so I was thinking about this when I introduced the bill, because we have got to provide other outlets for Californians 
to be able to reach out and call for help when they are having a crisis or an emergency, where they're not shamed, where they're not denied support, and where they're not shot. And exactly. And this is a, a bill that uh, you know, officers like this as well, uh, because many of the injuries that they face uh, involve domestic violence calls. They, they don't want to be here. They don't want to be here. And in fact, what I learned after my scenario, my incident was that the, during training sessions, law enforcement were told, don't go out for at least 40 minutes when you get DV calls or when you get these kind of restraining order calls, because if you delay, it may work itself out. We know that law enforcement officers, when they go out and respond to these kinds of calls, they're more likely, um, uh, it's more likely that they will be hurt in the incident. We know that these are highly emotional you know, calls. Um, and we also know that law enforcement deal with lots of workers comp, lots of lawsuits, and huge levels of liability just in general. And so the idea behind the Crisis Act is to minimize those costs that taxpayers ultimately have to pay. And you, uh, you know, that, that 45 minutes you just referred to, that's, that's how long you were waiting for an officer to show up. And that's a terrifying uh, at 45 minutes. You're, you're in there, you had changed the locks, you had you had you had done uh, all sorts of things to sort of separate yourself from your former partner, but yet you're in there inside your house, fearful, at, with this person outside, That's right. and, and and no one's coming. In 45 minutes, you're thinking, is this person going to bust down the door? Are they going to bust the window? Are they going to just wait me out? Because at some point, I'm going to have to leave to go to work to go to the store. Um, are they waiting in front of the door or have they found a way to go to the back? You know, are they going to wait by a window and start screaming at me? Are they going to start yelling and waking up the neighbors? Am I going to have to deal with that? You're thinking all of those things and you're thinking, is there something that I can do to deescalate this? But if I do something, will it in fact, you know, instigate or accelerate an already bad situation? Those are questions that all of us are asking when we are deciding whether or not to call 911. And you don't want to call 911 and then have a law enforcement officer come out and essentially treat you in a way that tells you next time this something like this happens, don't call me because I don't care about you. That is not how the relationship should go when we are calling for help. How did that influence you the next time you uh, did call 911 or thought about calling 911? I don't call 911. I have really? not called 911 since. And have there and there have been incidents where you, uh, you know, that you wanted to call 911 or thought about yes. it and said, no, I'm not going to do this. I have been burglarized. Um, you know, I have been uh, mugged. I was attacked um, at gunpoint at a bank. Oh my God. Um, and, and in LA or where was this? In at? Los Angeles, yes. Yeah. Um, and I have not, I do not call 911. I had another incident where um, the alarm went off in my house, and I actually shared this story in a, Assembly Public Safety. The alarm went off in the house because a door had swung open accidentally. The, my husband called and said, the alarm went off. Can you go home? I'm, I may meet you there myself. I got home. By the time I got home, police were in the house. 
because they had responded to the call. I came in, they were waiting for me. They were very calm. They were very professional, very nice. There were four of them. They were told me that the, they found the door that was open. They checked every, no one was here. I started shaking. I started crying. I was afraid that if my husband had decided to come home, would they shoot him in the house? And so I was thinking, wow, you know, we're in a good neighborhood. You know, I should not be afraid. I'm obviously not afraid about the alarm going off. They've told me that there is no burglar here and we have not been invaded. But I'm no longer afraid for anything in the house or for my well-being. I'm afraid if my husband comes home, they may shoot him thinking he is a potential perp. This, and this is all rooted in not only that one incident, but also a lifetime of, That's of, right. of living in the world as a, as, as a Black woman. That's right. This is pre-George Floyd, but it's certainly post, you know, Breonna Taylor. It's post, you know... Um, all of the names that we, Ahmad Aubrey, it's post all of those, um, post all of those names. And you're, you're wondering, you know, are you safe? And what does a perfect interaction with police look like for me as a black person or brown person or poor person so that I can come out of the interaction a lot? So let's talk about the Crises Act and how that and, and you hope that this would change those sort of interactions and, and have uh, hopefully have different outcomes in, in, in some of the cases you alluded to. How Tell us a little bit about, uh, this is a pilot program Yes, for, for uh, three years, I believe, correct? Yes. So it's a pilot program. We actually introduced it last year before George Floyd um, and, or the year before, and it would say that community-based organizations uh, can respond to 911 calls so that police officers don't have to. It is also a grant program. So on the one hand, it provides state clarity and guidance on how you would, you know, have something like this implemented in your city, in your town. Because we know post-George Floyd, there have been lots of discussions about cities beginning to do this. So on the one hand, it would provide some state policy and guidelines. And then on the other hand, it would actually provide funding, $30 million, to go out to community-based organizations across the state. They would be competitive grants. It would be for a three-year timeline. We would then take the um, data uh, from the program and review it to figure out how we could you know, um, have this be done permanently across the state obviously with state funding, but then if not, how we would, you know, support local jurisdictions um, ability to do this. Now, this this law, this legislation passed last year. Uh, it, it got to the governor. Governor Newsom vetoed it. I mean, it was, the, I got to say, it's one of the nicest veto notes I've ever read. He, he was seemed very supportive of it. Uh, but he said the Office of Emergency Services, we're going to get a little bit in the weeds here, wasn't the best place to run it. You said the other day that you're you're now proposing to run it through the Department of Social Services. Uh, do have you heard anything from the governor's office that said, okay, we're we're cool with that. You're going to get the green light on this. Yes. Yeah, so we have heard from um, the governor, and so you know, for your listeners, the Office of Emergency Services is like the state version of FEMA. 
So OES has been responsible for helping with wildfires, with COVID. I, I think maybe they were thinking OES is overwhelmed because of our state, you know, disasters. Um, so this year we have said we're going to run it again. <clears throat> the same, we are open to negotiating it being housed in a non-law enforcement department like Department of Social Services. And the governor's office seems to be amenable to that. So now we're just working to make sure that it will be fully funded. We'll have more of my conversation with State Senator Sidney Kamlanger after this short break. Now, and I this week I saw the story that we had in the Chronicle today uh, that I spoke to Brian Marvel, the president of the Peace Officers Research Association. That's a statewide federation of police unions, very powerful. And and uh, he said his organization hasn't taken a, a position on this. He, he said, told me, quote, we're not opposed to having other people respond to these incidents. So they're they're generally on board on this. Um, but these incidents keep happening day after day after day. Uh, three weeks ago, there was a, uh, in, in, in your, uh, Los Angeles County, uh, close to where you live, uh, a young man, 25 years old. Uh, he's deaf in both ears. Uh, he has scoliosis and uh, he, he has uh, is, is a autism. With autism. He's a, yes. And he was shot. Um, well, he was, well, let's back up. Uh, his mom called 911 because he was having a little, um, I don't know, an episode, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, what, tell us what happened then. So, you know, my stepson is autistic, highly functioning. Um, and I want to say that the disability community is um, very invisible to so many folks. And folks with disabilities, folks with autism have unregulated bodies. You know, there are triggers and there are sensories that are going off and, you know, they don't even know what's going on. <clears throat> but oftentimes, you know, we don't know what's going on. There was an article just today um, in the Los Angeles Times that was talking about these mock COVID vaccination sites to help folks with autism and people with disabilities get a sense of what it will look like to actually get the shot and what it will feel like so that they don't have any sensory triggers that jump off because they don't want to be touched in certain places and certain ways. And you really have to make sure that you are managing the space. So this young man was not happy. He was not, he was being denied a snack. His caregiver was there um, in the house. He had had similar episodes before. They had called 911 before and they had had a good response. But when you're a mother, when you're petite, when you just need some extra help, really what you want is an authority figure, an authority figure to come in and help deescalate a situation. That's why most folks call 911. They don't want anyone shot. They generally don't want someone arrested. They don't want any drama in their house or in their space, but they want an authority figure to come in and say, chill, stop, get it together. You have to go. That's what they want. So, and not damn- just an authority figure, but a pro, someone yes, who, who knows, right. who knows who what's knows? going on. Because right. law enforcement has two tools, uh, or, or uh, you know, one tool really. Um, so how would yes. your legislation have uh, pro- potentially changed this situation? Yes. So they came in eight seconds later. He was shot in the back, you know, on the ground in the living room oh, in front God. of his mother, in front of the caregiver, in front of his sisters, you know, his brother who has cerebral palsy. It's a horrific situation. 
the disability community across the state of California is up in arms and is terrified. Mothers who have sons and daughters who are autistic are afraid now. Um, my bill would have ha would have not had a deputy respond to the call, but would have had an organ a community based group, a nonprofit organization uh, that have folks trained with how to deal with um, folks with autism or special needs come out and deescalate and resolve the problem. Figure out what is it. Do you not enter? Who also understand the child is not only autistic but deaf. Right. So yes, can he not hear me? You know, someone who can come with the wherewithal to make assessments, quick assessments, judge, and then react. Now, and I will say this, when deputies and when police officers show up, they always have a gun. And they're also always thinking about their own safety and protection. And at some point, you have to create scenarios where that dichotomy is not in place because the default will always be protect myself and shoot you. And we don't need any more videos or stories or incidents like that when someone, you know, needs a timeout and you figure out how deep the timeout has to be, but it shouldn't necessarily always result in someone being paralyzed or killed. What is the, we've had a number of, uh, you know, the, the, these incidents, as we said, happen <clears throat> regularly, daily. We've had a couple of high-profile ones in the last couple of days. Anything that your legislation could address that, that that's happened nationally in the last couple of days? Well, I think, you know, with the Crisis Act, um, you would be able to have, you know, in the instance with Makia Bryant, you know, a 16-year-old girl who, you know, we don't know the whole story, but we know that she was upset and she was personally, you know, uh, scared for her safety. And maybe she had a knife, maybe she didn't. Who cares? You know, this would say, how do you go in and de-escalate that, um, you know, without anyone ending up injured? Um, I have another bill that actually talks about, you know, having someone other than a peace officer um, be able to go before a judge and attest to the need for an arrest warrant of another law enforcement officer. And we know that in the state of California, the only person who can attest to the arrest warrant of a law enforcement officer is another law enforcement officer. And we know that oftentimes they're unwilling to do that against one of their own. And so this bill would allow for prosecutors um, to also be able to go before a judge. So we're talking a little bit about police accountability along with, you know, how do we infuse other folks, you know, into these crisis and emergency situations. You know, I was actually thinking last night, I lived for a few years in New York, you know, in the 80s, and we had something like this, the Guardian Angels. Oh, yes. Curtis Lewa. Yes. Yes. Curtis. And so, you know, we are, the, we are the, of the same vintage, I think. So we, we know that we know that reference. Yes. And so they would ride the train and their job was right. to make sure that no shenanigans happened. You know, Un unarmed people, for those who don't remember or know the, the Guardian Angels, uh, unarmed uh, group of crew, uh, people, maybe six or eight. Mm -hmm. the same, mm -hmm. they, and they would wear uh, uh, red berets. Okay. Was it red berets? Yes. Um, and, uh, did they, did they have, they had some sort of basic, uh, martial arts training. They or had something training, or, right. But yeah, they were unarmed. Yeah. Um, unarmed. And yes. you knew that 
when you saw them on the train, you were like, okay, no jump offs going to happen tonight, you know, in this train right. because they're there. They were authority figures. They were recognized by the local jurisdiction and they were there to make sure that emergencies were handled and that crises were de-escalated. It is, it is very similar to that. Let's, uh, uh, now the one, one thing that some people are going to hear this, and this is an example of, uh, uh, I want to say defund the police, but it's not defund. It's, it's putting, uh, giving uh, uh, responsibilities that are typically handled by the police to other people. Some people may, uh, you know, sort of uh, try to uh, derail your suggestion by calling it defund the police, which is, uh, it's an inartful uh, slogan. Uh, if, you know, I think you're with me on that. What, what would you say to them if they, if they try to, to say that? Well, you know, I say to each his own, I say the state doesn't have any jurisdiction over uh, funds for police departments. Those are decisions that are made by uh, the city councils of those particular cities um, or the boards of supervisors for those particular counties. I would say this gives communities additional arsenal in terms of how to respond to crises and emergencies that happen. I would also say that police officers also do not want to have to respond to the barking dog, the obnoxious neighbor, the person loitering on the corner. Um, you know, the alcoholic in the park, um, you know, the person who is schizophrenic that no one seems to want to deal with, but has their episodes or even, you know, the hot uh, apartment or house on the corner where there always seems to be a jump off between, you know, partner A and partner B. They don't want to respond to those calls often. They don't want to respond to the nine-year-old who's acting up in the backyard. But we call them because that is the only option available to us. And oftentimes we're calling because we want someone with authority who knows a law or the law, whatever that means, to come in and say, stop with the BS. And so this will provide another alternative um, for, you know, how to resolve those kinds of situations. There, there are a number, yours is one of a number of police reform measures uh, before the legislature right now. Um, and we, we talked about it in, in the story in the Chronicle we uh, had the other day. Um, last summer, the, the racial justice movement was, was flourishing, and not just in California, as we know, but around the country and around the world. Do you have any concern that lawmaker, lawmakers won't be as motivated to pass this type of legislation now without? you know, the, the pressure in the streets without the, 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 the national conversation about this. Do you, do you have any concern about this or do you think that the, 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 uh, the die has been cast there? Sadly, I don't have any concerns about that because sadly, my heart tells me that we will continue to have stories like this in the news about what happened in Danville, about what happened to Nakia Bryant, about what happened to Isaias. Dante Wright, Dijon Kizzy, um, you know, we will, we, those are going to continue to happen. Um, and so we will, I don't know that we will ever get to a point where the die has been cast and it's no more. You know, last year, collectively, I guess, we decided that we were going to start interrogating our own legacy of racial violence in this country because of George Floyd. And you cannot stop that interrogation once it starts. Um, and so not even this verdict suggests 
that we should no longer interrogate our past and that we should no longer unravel, unwind, dismantle the systems that are dehumanizing um, so many of us. I wanted to run something by you that uh, Dr. Shirley Weber, our uh, Secretary of State, said the other day at the press conference you were at. Mm-hmm. And before that, she was, as we know, a longtime legislator who was at the forefront of a lot of police reform legislation in California. Mm-hmm. She said that for Black people, quote, it's hard, it's really hard after 402 years in this country to continue to raise the same issues over and over. We have done, as African Americans, all we can do. We will continue to write legislation. We will continue to raise the issue. It is now up to the rest of America to decide if they want a better America. What were your thoughts when you heard her say that the other day? Absolutely right. You know, I thought uh, this year alone, and we're only in April, almost 1,000 people have been shot or killed by police since January. I thought every single time we hear about a police shooting, when we are dissecting what happened, the question is always, well, could that person have done something different? Could they have, could they have said no, no, sir, or yes, sir? Or, you know, why are we asking Black people to be perfect? I, I was thinking to myself, we don't hear stories like this happening, you know, to white folks, to Asian folks, you know, to Native American folks, and, and white folks, and brown folks, and everyone gets crazy. Everyone is imperfect. Everyone gets upset. And somehow we're able to decipher and discern that they deserve some other kind of response than being shot and killed. So don't tell me that Black folks are the only culture in this country that are acting up. Anyone who's a human being has acted up. Why do we get treated different? It made me think of Lieutenant Nazario, who is an officer who was serving our country and was pepper sprayed at the gas station. You know, what more do we have to do as black people where we are recognized as human and as equal in the treatment, in the valuing of who we are? I was thinking, I'm a mother and a wife. When will I be able to not be afraid for my son, for my daughter, for my husband? And we have got to recognize that as long as that fear is there, we have to continue to push. When I was in Israel, I was having dinner with a peace negotiator and I asked him, I said, will there be peace in the Middle East? And he said, no. He said, as long as we do not acknowledge the other side's trauma, we will never have peace. That is where we are today with police violence and injustice. Senator, thank you so much for being on It's All Political today. Uh, I wish you luck with your legislation. Thank you so much. So great to be here. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Senator for being here today. By the way, she went to college in my hometown of Pittsburgh, and we had a uh, great chat about that off mic that I'll, I'll spare you of. I'd like to thank the king Webby-nominated producer King Kaufman for producing today's episode. And as always, a shout-out to our fabulous theme music that's Cattle Call, written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Croson. Until next time.